friends, welcome to Ends and Sensibility, the podcast for everyone who loves bold, witty women, awkward, handsome men, and dragons. I'm your host, Casey Meserve. It's finally fall here in New England, and it has been absolutely beautiful this month. All of the leaves have turned red and gold and orange and yellow, purple, even some of them. It is beautiful. The air is crisp and smells like dried leaves. It has been just perfect weather for the harvest, for going on hay rides and apple picking and going to pumpkin patches and and your old maize maze, which is what I call a corn maze. And it's just beautiful. I hope that fall, wherever you are, or spring if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, is just as beautiful where you are as it is where I am. Well, we have a lot to get to today, so let's get started. Today we're reading Chapter 10 of Sense and Sensibility. In our last episode, Marianne and Margaret were caught in a sudden downpour and were running down a steep hill to get home when Marianne slipped. Fortunately, she was rescued by a handsome young stranger who carried her own home in his arms, said his name, and disappeared back into the rain. When the Dashwoods are next visited by Sir John, they begged him for information about this young man who named himself Willoughby. And Sir John gets his kicks out of teasing Marianne about Willoughby and Colonel Brandon. In this episode, we'll get a closer look at this handsome young stranger and watch as he and Marianne get to know each other. Marianne's preserver, as Margaret, with more elegance than precision, styled Willoughby, called at the cottage early the next morning to make his personal inquiries. He was received by Mrs. Dashwood with more than politeness, with a kindness which Sir John's account of him and her own gratitude prompted. And everything that passed during that visit tended to assure him of the sense, elegance, mutual affection, and domestic comfort of the family to whom accident had now introduced him. Of their personal charms, he had not required a second interview to be convinced. Now, Margaret doesn't get much dialogue in this book, so we have to get to know her by how the narrator and how other characters describe her and how they talk to her. So here, the narrator says... Margaret is more elegant than precise when she calls Willoughby Marion's preserver. But if this isn't precise, then what is it? So this, from Margaret's actions and these few words, seem to say that she is a carefree girl without the depth of thought of her sisters. But, dude, she's 13, you know? She's got plenty of time to work on precision. And at the same time, what could she mean by preserver? Well, I pursued the interwebs for opinions, information, errata, and I found a few ideas. One, made by Susan Allard Ford, the editor of Persuasions and Persuasions Online Journal of the Jane Austen Society of North America, and professor of English Emirata at Delta State University, has a couple of ideas. In volume 38, number one of Persuasions, she writes that the influence of Jane West's A Gossip Story on Sense and Sensibility, and that book's hero, Claremont, 
who is also called the heroine Marianne's preserver. In West's novel, the courtship narratives are also set up in oppositional turns. Mr. Pelham rejected because he doesn't satisfy Marianne's expectations of that kneeling, ecstatic tenderness, that reckless solicitude, that profound veneration characteristic of men who really love, displays manly sense, and is devoted to duty, integrity, and fortitude. Instead, Marianne finds a lover in Claremont, who rescues her from an accident. Claremont, a name out of the pages of romance, is styled her preserver, the very word Margaret Dashwood uses to describe Willoughby. Like Austin's Marianne and Willoughby, West's Marianne and Claremont are propelled by tastes strikingly alike. So in Ford's opinion, the word preserver is no more than mirroring an earlier work, and we've seen Austin do that in this book. So maybe it's just that, but what if it's more? I came across an interesting blog about the word preserver. Now, this isn't an authoritative take or from a fancy journal like the last one, but does that always make an idea or an opinion less valid? I honestly believe that anyone can have a valid, insightful opinion about a book, particularly if it comes from an informed place. I mean, why else would we have literature classes in middle and high school? Why would I have a podcast when I am not an English professor? Anyways, there are prayers from the Common Prayer book that refer to God as our preserver, and the writer thinks that Jane uses this word to describe Willoughby to reflect on Marian's nature. Here's an example that the writer uses. God, the creator and preserver of all mankind, we humbly beseech thee for all sorts and conditions of men that thou wouldest be pleased to make thy ways known unto them, thy saving health unto all nations. He argues that Marianne's romantic worldview is one of idolatry, and she doesn't understand how real human relationships work. Marianne will grow to worship Willoughby as she worships nature, art, music, and opinions that match her own ideals and sensibilities. So Willoughby becomes Marianne's god, and when he eventually, spoiler alert, leaves her, her suffering isn't just a teenager getting dumped for the first time, which sucks. Her suffering is akin to the loss of faith, and she despairs. So this little word that the narrator immediately dismisses sums up Marianne's entire relationship with Willoughby. He's a so-called preserver. It's not precise because he can't live up to her worship. I mean, no one could. But the way he fails her is devastating to Marianne's spirituality and belief system. Anyways, I've linked this blog in the show notes, and I would love to hear your thoughts about this. Getting back to the book, Willoughby is so handsome and charming that all the Dashwoods immediately like him, and even Eleanor can't see anything too terrible in him. Now we get something rare in an Austen novel, a physical description of a character. Actually, two characters. Miss Dashwood had a delicate complexion, regular features, and a remarkably pretty figure. Marianne was still handsomer. Her form, though not so correct as her sister's and having the advantage of height, was more striking. And her face was so lovely 
that when, in the common cant of praise, she was called a beautiful girl, truth was less violently outraged than usually happens. Her skin was very brown, but from its transparency, her complexion was uncommonly brilliant. Her features were all good, her smile was sweet and attractive, and in her eyes, which were very dark, there was a life, a spirit, an eagerness, which could hardly be seen without delight. So Eleanor is very pretty, with regular features, of nice figure, meaning there's not anything unusual about her looks. She's petite and pale, but Marianne is a looker. She has tan skin, curly hair, and a sweet smile, but it's her eyes that really shine, so to speak. They were very dark, and there was a life, a spirit, an eagerness. They were really are the windows to this spirited personality. But the second time she meets Willoughby, she's embarrassed. The last thing she remembers about him is being carried in his arms, and that's very embarrassing. This is the 1790s. You couldn't even touch hands with a young gentleman. But luckily for Marianne, she doesn't stay shy for long. When her spirits became collected, when she saw that to the perfect good breeding of the gentleman, he united frankness and vivacity, and above all, when she heard him declare that of music and dancing he was passionately fond, she gave him such a look of approbation as secured the largest share of his discourse to herself for the rest of his stay. Oh, you like music and dancing? You can stay. Now that she's given him the look, everything Willoughby says has Marianne's utmost attention. And everything he says, she's got an answer. It was only necessary to mention any favorite amusement to engage her talk. She could not be silent when such points were introduced, and she had neither shyness nor reserve in their discussion. They speedily discovered that their enjoyment of dancing and music was mutual, and that it arose from a general conformity of judgment in all that related to either. Encouraged by this to a further examination of his opinions, she proceeded to question him on the subject of books. Her favorite authors were brought forward and dwelt upon with so rapturous a delight that any young man of five and twenty must have been insensible indeed not to become an immediate convert to the excellence of such works, however disregarded before. Their tastes were strikingly alike. The same books, the same passages were idolized by each. Or if any difference appeared, any objection arose, it lasted no longer than till the force of her arguments and the brightness of her eyes could be displayed. I'm imagining Marianne grilling this poor guy about Cooper and Walter Scott, and you can see Willoughby being swept along by all her passion. He acquiesced in all her decisions, caught all her enthusiasm. But the narrator also seems to say that Willoughby might just be agreeing with her because she's a pretty girl. And remember what Marianne said way back in chapter 3. I could not be happy with a man whose taste did not in every point coincide with my own. He must enter into all my feelings. The same books, the same music must charm us both. This is the guy. The guy whose taste coincide at every point with her own. Now that might be because he's being agreeable to a beautiful girl. Can anyone really like Cooper and Scott as much as Marianne? When Willoughby finally leaves, Eleanor has to take a big sister dig at Marianne. 
Well, Marianne, said Eleanor, as soon as he had left them, for one morning I think you have done pretty well. You have already ascertained Mr. Willoughby's opinion in almost every matter of importance. You know what he thinks of Cooper and Scott. You are certain of his estimating their beauties as he ought, and you have received every assurance of his admiring Pope no more than is proper. But how is your acquaintance to be long supported under such extraordinary dispatch of every subject for discourse? You will have soon exhausted each favorite topic. Another meeting will suffice to explain his sentiments on picturesque beauty and second marriages, and then you can have nothing farther to ask. Eleanor is using some really ironic humor here to tease Marianne about her immediate bestie, Willoughby. Eleanor is so methodical when she evaluates others, it took her months to get to know Edward. Remember, Edward had been staying several weeks in the house before the ladies could even bother to chit-chat with him. So, in addition to teasing Marianne, she's also suggesting that one can't achieve the type of knowledge of another person without taking time and care and using judgment. But teasing Marianne is also fun because Eleanor knows exactly how to rile her sister up. Marianne doesn't have much of a sense of humor. Everything is so serious to her. Beauty and romance and teasing, especially her sister's teasing. Eleanor cried Marianne. Is this fair? Is this just? Are my ideas so scanty? But I see what you mean. I have been too much at my ease, too happy, too frank. I have erred against every commonplace notion of decorum. I have been open and sincere when I ought to have been served, spiritless, dull, and deceitful. Had I talked only of the weather and the roads, and had I spoke only once in ten minutes, this reproach would have been spared. Marianne is giving that right back to her sister here. You can see she's poking fun at the dull ways people talk when first introduced. They're dull and spiritless. Like when the Dashwoods first met Sir John and his wife. It was very dull, and they just talked about the weather and, the, and their child. Think about all the first dates you've been on. We, we just try our best to say something interesting, but sometimes nothing works and we end up talking about the weather and traffic or saying nothing at all, which is just the worst. But when you really connect with someone, when you finally relax and be yourself rather than the nice you, rather than trying to be on your best behavior and showing your best side, that's when you really connect with someone. I, I think so anyways. So that's what happened to Marianne and Willoughby, at least on Marianne's side. The spark, that sudden, intense connection with another person, is what Marianne is feeling here. And she wouldn't be able to feel that if she acted reserved and spiritless, as she knows Eleanor would have acted. In the annotated Sense and Sensibility, the editor, David Shepard, says at this point that Marianne is humorless. But I disagree to a point. I think Marianne understands Eleanor is telling a joke and that she's teasing her. It's just that her adherence to sensibilities gets in the way of her enjoying humor. But Mrs. D knows how to soothe Marianne, just in case. My love, said her mother, you must not be offended with Eleanor. She was only in jest. I should scold her myself if she were capable of wishing to check the delight of your conversation with our new friend. Marianne was softened in a moment. Well, Willoughby visits the Dashwoods daily, and very soon, he and Marianne become close. 
To inquire after Marianne was his first excuse, but the encouragement of his reception, to which every day gave greater kindness, made such an excuse unnecessary before it had ceased to be possible by Marianne's perfect recovery. She was confined for some days to the house, but never had any confinement been less irksome. Willoughby was a young man of good abilities, quick imagination, lively spirit, and open, affectionate manners. He was exactly formed to engage Marian's heart, for with all this he joined not only a captivating person, but a natural ardor of mind, which was now roused and increased by the example of her own, and which recommended him to her affection beyond everything else. His society became gradually her most exquisite enjoyment. They read, they talked, they sang together. His musical talents were considerable, and he read with all the sensibility and spirit which Edward had unfortunately wanted. Well, he wasn't lying about the music part, and he reads very well, which we all remember Edward couldn't do. And now that I think about it, isn't it funny that two of Austen's romantic male characters are lousy readers? Okay, so maybe it's a stretch to call Mr. Collins a romantic male lead. He certainly tried to be, and he does get married to an eligible young lady in Pride and Prejudice. But he was such a terrible reader. He read Fordyce's sermons in that solemn, monotonous tone, like my eighth grade math teacher. And Edward is an awful reader, at least when he's trying to read Cooper. But Willoughby is a wonderful reader. Marianne probably put Cooper in his hands like the first week as a test. And Willoughby wasn't lying when he said he enjoyed music. He is ticking all of Marianne's boxes so far. He really was formed to engage her heart. At least he seems to be. And Mrs. D approves of him because of course she does. But Eleanor isn't so sure about this guy. He's kind of exactly like her sister. Eleanor saw nothing to censure in him but a propensity in which he strongly resembled and peculiarly delighted her sister of saying too much what he thought on every occasion without attention to persons or circumstances, in hastily forming and giving his opinions of other people, in sacrificing general politeness to the enjoyment of undivided attention where his heart was engaged, and in sliding too easily the forms of worldly propriety. He displayed a want of caution which Eleanor could not approve, in spite of all that he and Marianne would say in its support. Marianne doesn't care about Eleanor's opinion. She's met the man of her dreams, which six months ago she despaired of ever finding. But what about Colonel Brandon? Sir John basically said he was a far better catch than Willoughby, and this is despite him having almost nothing in common with Brandon. Mrs. Jennings and Sir John were right. Interesting. I wonder if they'll be right about other things. But now, Mrs. J and Sir John are focused on Willoughby. Their attention and wit were drawn off to his more fortunate rival, and the raillery which the other had incurred before any partiality arose was removed when his feelings began really to call for the ridicule so justly annexed to sensibility. Since Mrs. Jennings and Sir John have a new guide to harass, Eleanor now has time to analyze Brandon, and what she sees surprises her. Eleanor was obliged, though unwilling, to believe that the sentiments which Mrs. Jennings had assigned him for her own satisfaction 
were now actually excited by her sister, and that however a general resemblance of a disposition between the parties might forward the affection of Mr. Willoughby. An equally striking opposition of character was no hindrance to the regard of Colonel Brandon. She saw it with concern. For what could a silent man of five-and-thirty hope, when opposed by a very lively one of five-and-twenty? And as she could not even wish him successful, she heartily wished him indifferent. She liked him. In spite of his gravity and reserve, she beheld in him an object of interest. His manners, though serious, were mild, and his reserve appeared rather the result of some oppression of spirits than of any natural gloominess of temper. Sir John had dropped hints of past injuries and disappointments, which justified her belief in his being an unfortunate man, and she regarded him with respect and compassion. Perhaps she pitied and esteemed him the more because he was slighted by Willoughby and Marianne, who, prejudiced against him for being neither lively nor young, seemed resolved to undervalue his merits. Well, it took long enough for Eleanor to see Brandon's crush on her 17-year-old sister. And instead of being creeped out about it like we would be, she feels bad for him. And she really likes him. Under that reserve and seriousness, he seems to be a really nice person. But what does he have that Willoughby can't offer? He may have money and a nice estate, but Willoughby apparently does too. Brandon is old and silent and grumpy. And Eleanor can't wish him success with Marianne. Yet she likes him. But the narrator also suggests that maybe she likes him more because of the way Marianne and Willoughby treat him. And Willoughby in particular says some pretty nasty things about Brandon. This reading is a long one, but I didn't want to leave anything out. Brandon is just the kind of man, said Willoughby one day, when they were talking of him together, whom everybody speaks well of, and nobody cares about, whom all are delighted to see, and nobody remembers to talk to. That's exactly what I think of him, cried Marianne. Do not boast of it, however, said Eleanor, for it is injustice to both of you. He is highly esteemed by all the family at the park, and I never see him myself without taking pains to converse with him. That he is patronized by you, replied Willoughby, is certainly in his favor. But as for the esteem of the others... It is a reproach in itself. Who could submit to the indignity of being approved by such a woman as Lady Middleton and Mrs. Jennings? That would command the indifference of anybody else. But perhaps the abuse of such people as yourself and Marianne will make amends for the regard of Lady Middleton and her mother. If their praise is censure, your censure may be praise, for they are not more undiscerning than you are prejudiced and unjust. In defense of your protege, you can even be saucy. My protege, as you call him, is a sensible man, and sense will always have attractions for me. I'm going to stop here for a minute. This is about as harsh as we've seen Eleanor get. She's always willing to keep Marianne and her mother in line, but she's really giving a piece of her mind to Willoughby right near. Willoughby deserves it. He is ready to make fun of anyone who doesn't meet his ideal and dour old Brandon is ripe for picking. And Marianne goes along with it because she can use it to shield herself from Brandon's crush. And she scoffs at Eleanor for just always liking people of sense. So Eleanor tells Marianne off too. 
Yes, Marianne, even a man between 30 and 40. He has seen a great deal of the world, has been abroad, has read, and has a thinking mind. I have found him capable of giving me much information on various subjects, and he has always answered my inquiries with readiness of good breeding and a good nature. That is to say, cried Marianne contemptuously, that he has told you that in the East Indies the climate is hot and the mosquitoes are troublesome. He would have told me so, I doubt not, had I made any such inquiries, but they happened to be points on which I had been previously informed. Perhaps, said Willoughby, his observations have been extended to the existence of nabobs, gold moors, and palanquins. I may venture to say that his observations have scratched much further than your candor. But why should you dislike him? I do not dislike him. I consider him, on the contrary, as a very respectable man, who has everybody's good word and nobody's notice, who has more money than he can spend, more time than he knows how to employ, and two new coats a year. And to which, cried Marianne, that he has neither genius, taste, nor spirit, that his understanding has no brilliancy, his feelings no ardor, and his voice no expression. You decide on his imperfections so much in the mass, replied Eleanor, and so much on the strength of your own imagination, that the commendation that I am able to give him is comparatively cold and insipid. I can only pronounce him to be a sensible man, well-bred, well-informed, of gentle address, and I believe possessing an amiable heart. Miss Dashwood, cried Willoughby, you are now using me unkindly. You are endeavoring to disarm me by reason and to convince me against my will, but it will not do. You shall find me as stubborn as you can be artful. I have three unanswerable reasons for disliking Colonel Brandon. He threatened me with rain when I wanted it to be fine. He has found fault with the hanging of my curricle, and I cannot persuade him to buy my brown mare. If it will be any satisfaction to you, however, to be told that I believe his character to be in any other respects irreproachable, I am ready to confess it. And in return for acknowledgement, which must give me some pain, you cannot deny me the privilege of disliking him as much as ever. Whew. Okay, let's break that down. So Willoughby starts the Brandon bashing with a really nasty insult. Everyone says they like Brandon but nobody really cares about Brandon. Everyone is happy to see Brandon, but nobody bothers to talk to Brandon. That's not nice. Willoughby is really being malicious. And then Marianne agrees with him. They agree on everything. But this is really not like Marianne that we've seen so far. And Marianne is particularly vindictive about her criticism of Brandon. She's throwing everything she considers important. He has neither genius, taste, nor spirit. His understanding has no brilliancy, his feeling has no ardor, and his voice has no expression. These are the sensibilities that Marianne cares about. These are the things that she wants in a man, and these are the things that she thinks Brandon is lacking. Brandon may be sensible, but he has no sensibilities of art, of nature, or spirit. He's a stick in the mud. And Eleanor's support of him sounds weak even to Eleanor. And then Willoughby sarcastically says that Brandon may be able to describe all the people, places, and things, the rich governors, gold coins, covered litters, but the, the really saying is that he cannot describe the experience of a place. They're talking about those sensibilities. Finally, Willoughby admits he doesn't like Brandon for material reasons. 
Brandon said it would rain when Willoughby wanted a nice day. He criticized Willoughby's carriage. And worst of all, Brandon would not buy his brown mare. And this is really interesting because Marianne wants to think Willoughby has all the things Brandon lacks. But Willoughby here admits that he's focused on selfish, prideful, and material things. Now, before we finish up today, let's have one more look at all the comparisons we've seen in this chapter. Jane has so many comparisons here. We have Eleanor and Marianne, Willoughby and Brandon, Marianne and Willoughby. And this chapter also helps us compare Willoughby and Edward. We have these physical descriptions of Marianne and Eleanor, how beautiful Marianne is even compared to her pretty sister. And we see their argument over Brandon. Eleanor talks to Brandon, watches him, and uses her common sense to realize he's a good man under all that reserve and that he loves her sister. And Marianne and Willoughby are at first seem to have a lot in common, the books and poetry and music, and they both agree that Brandon is a boring old man. But we also see some things that maybe show Willoughby isn't all that Marianne wishes him to be, except agreeable. And Willoughby is supposed to be this virile man of action, exciting, sensible to music and nature with a strong singing voice and strong opinions. Well, Brandon is old, reserved to the point of being grave, dull, and forgettable, while still being mild and kind and welcome wherever he goes. That's a striking contrast. And Brandon is worldly, independent, and wise, while Willoughby is waiting for his aunt to die so he can have her fortune. And finally, we see one sentence, a comparison of Willoughby and Edward. Willoughby's musical talents were considerable, and he read with all the sensibility and spirit which Edward had unfortunately wanted. And while that's not a knock on Edward from Eleanor's point of view, or from Mrs. D's, from Marianne, an unfortunate want of sensibility and spirit is a deal-breaker. Oh, wow. We've covered a lot of ground today. Thank you for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Next time, we'll cover Chapter 11, and we'll meet another one of Jane's family members. Before I end this episode, I am super excited to announce that I am going to be on the Your Favorite Book Podcast with Malavika Proceed in January, and we're going to talk about Pride and Prejudice. I really hope that you'll listen to that episode. Malavika and I had a ton of fun recording it. You can listen to your favorite book wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to more episodes of Ends and Sensibility on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Amazon by asking Siri to play Ends and Sensibility. You can join our conversation on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ents and Sensibility. And you can also drop a note at ensinsensibility at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening today and have a wonderful evening.